You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our passage for today is Ephesians 2:11 through 3:13. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in this heavenly place. This was according to the eternal purpose that he was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this rainy morning. So we're in Ephesians. Go ahead and turn there with me if you haven't yet. We are uh, today actually finalizing, wrapping up a short series, our vision series for this year. If you didn't know, a few weeks ago we paused our study in the Gospel of John, to just have sort of a family conversation, to refocus on our minds on what we sense the Lord calling us into this year, to grow into as a church. And so just to review what, what we've covered so far, where we sense the Lord calling us, He calls us to be missional church. We want to be on mission, partnering with Him in what He is doing, and He actually is at work all around us. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that the harvest is now. It's not later, 
We don't sit on our hands and just wait for it to come to us. Like, it's now. It's all around us. He says, lift up your eyes and see the harvest. It's all around you. And so truly, your friends, your family, at work, wherever, wherever God has put you, and he has put you where you're at, he has put you there for such a time as this. God is at work all around you, tenderizing hearts, preparing hearts. And so we are called to share the gospel, proclaim our faith, declare the excellencies of him who's called us to have darkness and in a marvelous, marvelous light. Uh, we are called to do that with confidence because he is already at work around us. So we're either sowing seeds or we're going to reap the harvest, either one, okay? So we're partnering with God in what he's doing. We're on mission, sharing the gospel. But we also know that as we're doing that, we're entering into warfare. The enemy of our souls wants us to miss out on what God is doing. He knows, as we all know, the kingdom is advancing. Jesus wins. He is going to win. And the enemy knows that. The enemy can't stop that train, but he can discourage you. He can distract you so that you miss out on on stepping into this advancement. And so what we talked about last week is one of the things Jesus models for us, how we can remain strong and steadfast so we're not discouraged, not disqualifying ourselves, not compromising, is we fast. We allow our bodies to teach us how much we need God. And in that act and discipline of fasting, we learn what dominates us. We learn how much we need God and are filled by God. And we actually experience profound, deep transformation over the course of the years as we fast and pray. And today, we want to wrap up this series by talking about community. Jesus's vision for community, what he has initiated and what he has called us now to carry on. And what you'll see in this passage as we fly through it, I'm not going to preach through every single verse. You'll find that we're kind of just dropping in and talking about certain words and phrases here and there. But Jesus's vision for community is actually a powerful witness to the watching world. That's what I really hope you get to see today is, is if we get this right, if we embrace this profound vision for this unique human society called the church, man, the watching world is going to be floored, floored. And it gives our words credibility. It gives our words power. And so this really is the cherry on top to the whole entire vision. It's us having this really incredible community that Jesus has called us into. And so our points for today is one, the gospel creates this kind of community. The gospel event, it creates a community. Secondly, uh, the gospel or this community demands sacrifice. And thirdly, it's worth it. So that's what we're going to talk about today before we jump into this passage. I want us to pray together. So let's just do that right now. Father, we come to you as the Lord of all. And you have called each one of us who have called in your name. You called us by name first. You loved us first. And so you called us by your grace. You've brought us here to gather. And Lord, now we are here before you, attentive to you. We are attentive to you now in this moment. We ask God that you would teach us and fill our minds with this vision for what we ought to be, what kind of community we ought to be here at Citizens Church. So Lord, do a work in us, we pray today. Uh, Let today not just be sort of a check in the box for us. Maybe we've come here uh, into these doors today, just in the routine. This is what we do every Sunday. Father, I pray that you would still our hearts right now, cause us to be called to attention, to receive your instruction for today so that we might be a blessing to the world as we are blessed by one another. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. The gospel is a community-shaping event. The gospel creates community. So first we're going to start off just talking about the gospel. 
meditating on what exactly is the gospel according to this passage. So in verse 12, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is how it describes us before Christ. It says we are separated, alienated, having no hope without God in the world. In verse 13, it says we are far off. Now do me a favor, just for a moment here. I want you to think about your vices. Think about what trips you up in your life. Think about your tendencies towards selfishness, tendencies towards excess, tendencies towards hypocrisy, tendencies towards whatever it might be. I want you to think about your vices for a moment that you struggle with. Now, if you're a Christian, Jesus has stepped into your life and he has saved you from yourself. He has saved you from that self-destruction, that worst version of yourself that you could be. I want you to think about if he didn't. What if Jesus did not step in and save you from yourself? What would you be like? Think about your vices. Think about the things you struggle with even to that to today. If Jesus had never stepped in, what 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 direction would your life have taken? And who would you have become? We would be so far from God. We would be the worst version of ourselves, destroying ourselves, hurting others around us. We'd be without God, without hope in this world, truly, without any hope in this world. Now, if you're here and you're curious and seeking, maybe you're not um, a follower of Jesus right now, but maybe you're thinking about it. I want to show you why living without God really is to live without hope in this world. So when you were 16 years old, uh, your dad and mom handed you keys to a car. And they said, here you go, this is yours now. It's yours to drive, take care of it. And so, of course, taking care of a car means that you get oil changes, you fill it with the right gasoline, uh, you have the tires rotated, you change the brake pads every once in a while, you don't talk and text on the phone, all these things, right, that, that are, are what we're supposed to do to honor the model of the car, how the car works, how the car is used safely. But imagine if you're 16 years old and you just disregard all of those designs, all of those, all that insight, all that wisdom, and you drive recklessly, you talk on the phone, you fill it with the wrong kind of gasoline, you never get an oil change. What's going to happen? Your, your car is going to be destroyed. You will be in danger and you will be putting other people in danger. And why? Why? Why is that? Because when we don't honor the way of things, when we don't honor that preset design that's been embedded within reality, we tend to unravel, we tend to hurt others. There's a great breakdown that occurs on all levels. That illustration is just a picture of what sin does to us. That's what sin is. And you might think sin is like this archaic, judgy word, but it's really a reasonable word because it just describes this reality that when we don't honor the way of things, how our maker and creator has set up the world, his design, his law. When we don't abide by his law and honor the way of things, a great unraveling effect occurs, doesn't it? We unravel, others unravel, and society unravels. And so, truly, without God as the greatest point of reference in life to make sense of all things, we are without hope. We are without hope. That's the bad news. What could we have become? What direction could life have taken us if it wasn't for Jesus stepping in and saving us? But now, the good news is that we're not left on our own. Look at verse 13. It says that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
That is a great reversal of our situation. We were far off, alienated, separated from God. We didn't know him. We were without hope in this world. And now we have been brought near to him. We are. The gospel says that we are not abandoned anymore. We're not left on our own to figure things out on our own. We're not left as orphans and strangers in the world. We have a father who has brought us home to himself. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ is very important because here's why. Your assurance that you are in, that you're found, that you're not alone anymore, not alienated, is not because of how good you are. Or it's, it's not um, um, affected by how bad you are. Our assurance that we are loved by God, kept by God, always near God, His presence is never going to leave us. Our assurance has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do, to do with a perfect, divine, glorious, priceless blood of Jesus on our behalf. He is our bedrock of assurance. He is our confidence where our confidence lies. We've been brought near, not because of how good I am, not because of how bad I am. Those things are not taken into account. The only thing that's taken into account is Christ and his perfect blood on our behalf. His perfect blood not only paid for our sin, but paid for our sin once and for all. So let me just say this. Um, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you're, you're tracking with me, to shrink back from God because of your sin, it's not uh, an act of humility. That is an act of unbelief. Because what the gospel is declaring is that your, God placing his love on you and bringing you to him had nothing to do with your goodness or badness. And so therefore, that's not the criteria that he makes any decisions about you now, today. It's always based on the perfect, righteous blood of Jesus in your place. So no matter how you feel or what you do, the gospel is a great reversal of your, our situation, a great reversal of our situation. And if you're here and you're not a believer, you're again investigating, you're curious, you're seeking, I just want to tell you there has to be a point in your life where you recognize that this is it now. There, there's, there's no such, to not make a choice is to make a choice. It's to say, I'll put that off till other things fall into place, till all the stars align, till I get some things out of my system, till all the, all the stars line up, till all my questions are answered. To not make a decision is to make a decision. And if you're here and you're a young person, here with your family, your parents, I want to talk to you just for a moment right now. You your salvation is not something that's simply just inherited from your parents. That, that just is simply transferred to you because you grew up in a Christian household. If you're here and you're a young person, this has to be a personal decision that you make between you and God where you recognize that on my own God, it's going to go poorly. And on, on my own God, I am under your judgment. But God, because of your grace, you invite me to be forgiven and loved that moment has to happen. For all of you who are seeking, for all of you who are curious, that moment has to happen. That season of life, you know, it has to take place where that shift, that pivot occurs. So I want to encourage you, if you're here and you're seeking, don't put off the best decision you'll ever make in your whole entire life, which is to no longer be alone and alienated and separated and far off from your father and creator. So that's the gospel, okay? It's a great reversal. It invites you into itself to experience life in Jesus. But now look at this, all right? This wonderful gospel, wow, it results in something. 
Like there, there's something that we get to inherit now because of the blood of Jesus and what he's done. Verse 14, here's the result of the gospel. He has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You know what he's saying there? That the gospel is not just something that forgives you so that you're now brought into the nearness of God and no longer alone, but the gospel is something that brings you towards other people so you're no longer alone. Like We're not separated from God, and because of that, we're called to not be separated from one another. We are now one. We are family. We are connected and together. He says here, uh, he has made us both one, broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. This is Paul's addressing like the elephant in the room in this time because here's Jews on one hand who have their moral code, who have their, their elite culture and customs, and then here's the Gentiles who are the pagans, the outliers of their day. And there was tons of antagonism between these two people groups, but he's saying now Christ has made you all one, one family. So Paul has in mind, I want you to listen clear here now, Paul has in mind right now, in this passage, we talk about authentic community, being a church family. He's talking about a diverse community of people who are together because of the gospel. A diverse group of people who are together, not because we like the same sports teams, not because we're the same age, not because we come from the same backgrounds, not because we have those good, but oftentimes superficial things in common. We are together, one, because of Christ. So now, the question is, why does the gospel break down these walls and bring together people from across culture and race and generations? Why does the culture, why does the gospel bring about this unifying reality? Verse 15 tells us, it says this, by abolishing, you know, uh, removing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that refers to the Old Testament law, that he might create, that Jesus might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So what he's saying here is the law, <laughs> the purpose of the law in the Old Testament was never to save us. That couldn't happen. It, we, <laughs> we can't meet the standards of the law. It's not, that's not going to happen. And so what the law's purpose to do is to drive us to that reality, that we don't actually have what it takes to meet, to meet the standard. We don't have what it takes to be holy as God is holy. That we, if it's left to us to just prove ourselves in accordance to the law, that's not going to go well. And so what he's saying here is the law, it's doing its job. It's getting us to the point where we recognize that I need a savior because I can't save myself. And now Jesus has arrived. He lives a blameless, sinless life. He fulfills the whole entire law. And his righteousness, that perfection, it's transferred to anybody who will call on his name. So now the law has been fulfilled. Now Jesus has fulfilled the law and gives to us that perfect resume. So he's saying here, you Jews in, the, you know, Jews in these churches, no longer look to the law as this, this um fixture in your culture that gives you an elite status because now it's been removed because now what we look to to find our righteousness to find our status is to Jesus but who else does the Gentiles all other nations in the world who trust in Jesus they also look to Jesus for their righteousness so he's saying because the gospel has flattened out and removed every single thing that we put our confidence in 
So we look down on other people, it's been, that's, been, that's been removed completely. And so now in Christ, we're equals. We have the same footing, the same standing. We are one. In other words, any identifying marker that we would associate with or attach to, you know, the Jews, the law, any identifying marker that we would find ourselves drawn to, Paul is saying Jesus removes that as your identifying marker and your new identifying marker is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's my new identity and it's their new identity. So we are now one. In fact, he says he's creating himself one new man. And the original readers would understand that to be one new Adam. Like a whole new humanity has been created because of the gospel. So truly, we are one, a whole new human society. And Paul really, really hammers in this point because it's really scandalous in this time. I mean, we might have heard that growing up, but for these churches, this is like, this is strange to hear. But he hammers home this point. In verse 16, he says that we are both reconciled to God. Like, we are all reconciled to God, which means we all have equal standing now. So we don't look down on each other anymore. We don't hold bitterness and resentment towards anybody to hold them in contempt. We are literally all equals now. And in verse 18, he says this. This is so mind-boggling. He says, we have equal access to the same Father, which means we are really now one family because we all have the same father. Now, I think family is a very appropriate way to understand the church. Because family, you know, where else do you find people of different ages and different personalities all in the same room? Even if they don't like one another, they love one another. And they're obligated to one another and committed to one another. Where else does that take place? That's the family. Now that's also the church. We have the same father. So everything that we hold against one another is dropped. We're equals. We're one. That's what the gospel creates. My identity is Jesus. Your identity is Jesus. We are now a new human society. We are interconnected and forged because of the blood of Jesus. This is now my family. So in Christ, we look to our right and our left. And if someone is in Christ, they are in this new humanity as am I. So the gospel is powerful. It's brought you near to God. You're not alone anymore. It's brought us near to one another. We're not alone anymore. And the call for you now, Citizens Church, is to see the church this way. We're different, but we're the same. Because our identity is in Jesus, we have the same identifying marker. We've been baptized. We have the same confession. We take the supper together. We have the same gospel. We have the same status. We have the same father. We are different, but we are the same. But I want you to know that this remarkable community that the gospel has created, it does require one essential thing. It requires us all to do one essential thing. I'm not going to tell you. It'll kind of jump off the pages as, as we go through this. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 6, that this community is formed in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says that this community is formed according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Back up in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says that in Christ, in Christ again, we who were far off were brought near. And now my question for you is, what does it mean that this community 
is initiated in Christ. Shaped and initiated and catapulted, you know, in Christ. It means that it required Christ to do something for this community to happen, to be made possible. He, he originated it in what he has done. But what has he done? Verse 13, he shed his blood. Verse 16, he dies on the cross. So Jesus, and, and I know we can gloss over this so easily, but think about this. Jesus has shed his blood and suffered and died on a Roman cross so that we could be made one, every single one of us, all of us in here. And I'm going to add to this now. Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 1, that he's a prisoner because of this great community that's being formed. He is a steward of it, so he oversees and manages and thinks about it all the time. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says that. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says he preaches for it. I'm preaching for this aim, for the sake of this all the time, that this community might be formed. And then the last verse, chapter 3, verse 13, he says he suffers for it. He suffers for this community so it might be realized and sustained. And so what does this community, this radical community, require of us in this room. Sacrifice. It requires a commitment to sacrifice for one another, to make this happen. Jesus has initiated it in his sacrifice. Paul sustains it in his continual sacrifice. It's no different with us. We sustain this community by sacrifice. Look, this is hard because we tend to forge relationships with people who look like us, talk like us, dress like us, are in the same age demographic as us, and that's community, but that's not necessarily Christian community. Christian community is diverse. And even more difficult about this vision for community is that Jesus' vision for community is not, listen to me clearly, hear me clearly here, Jesus' vision for his church, our community, is not that all kinds of people are just seen together. It includes that. But that all kinds of people love each other. <laughs> and you can't love someone unless you know them. Right? So this vision, it calls for us not just not just, not just to inhabit the same spaces as one another, but to be friends with one another. So like Paul and like Jesus, stepping into this great vision for community, it requires us to sacrifice. So here's what it's going to look like. I'll make it very clear. So we have these pathways to run in. It looks like pursuing friendships that are outside your demographic. Like all of us here have a friend group. And friend groups are great. I'm not, I'm not bashing on friend groups. But if those are your only friends, now we're, now we're underachieving. We're not actually realizing the fullness of this vision for community. So you have to pursue friendships outside your, your demographic. Two, commit to a small group. You have to commit to a small group. And three, prize the gathering. The Sunday morning gathering, this weekly rhythm where we gather the day Jesus resurrected. If I could sum it all up, okay, um, if I can sum it all up, what this looks like, I'd go to Hebrews 10, where we read this morning together. I'm going to read it again for us. And I want you to notice that these instructions, it's not in the singular. The author of Hebrews is not saying you and you and you do this, but us. 
we do this. Look at this. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so there's our new identity. That's who we are now. We're forgiven. We have a great high priest. We are reconciled, all of us together. It says, brothers, we are all reconciled. So therefore, what? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So let us worship together. And he continues, let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us be taught about the confession. Let us agree about the confession. Let us know what is true and be bound to the truth together. And then he, followed, he, he, he concludes saying this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Gather. On Sundays, gather in the week. Why? To stir one another up because the day is approaching. Like we need hope, the hope in the gospel. We need that to be, to be uh, pressed down deeply into our hearts as we sing together and as we, as we are taught together and as we talk with one another and as we study together. Like we need this if we're going to make it. We need one another. And this is the author of Hebrews, how he, how he describes it. This is what it requires. It requires having friendships. It requires us Going to small group, it requires us committing to the Sunday morning gathering. The gospel really is this community-forming event that requires commitment from each of us so that we persevere. So I think, you know, this isn't rocket science. Like, how do we make friends? How do we, how do we commit to this? Like, it just takes great intentionality. It just takes getting outside your comfort zone. It, it takes sacrifice. <clears throat> so now what I want to do is show you that it's worth it. Like, this is really worth it for the discomfort and the awkwardness that this is gonna, that you're gonna experience. It is absolutely worth it. And I wanna show you first that's worth it by pointing to how this empowers our mission as a church. Like, this is actually a part of our mission how to reach the world and reach the lost. And then I wanna conclude by showing you how this actually is a blessing to you, how you are missing out on richness in your life if you, if you, hesitate to get on board with this, okay? So community is worth it because it's a powerful witness in and of itself. And you'll see that in verses one through six, chapter three, verses one through six. I'm going to read it. And I I want you to look out for repetition in here, okay? There's a word that keeps popping up as we read this passage. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, previous generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, here we go, he keeps using the word mystery. Like there's, this, there's been this secret that God has kept had been hinting at, but hasn't disclosed for centuries now. What is God's best kept secret? Like what's he been angling at and moving all of history towards? What's been the best kept secret? He says the mystery is that the Gentiles 
are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What's God's best kept secret for the ages? It's this community of diverse, redeemed people who are one. That's what God has been working towards for so long. Like this, diverse people calling on his name together, living life with one another, forged in relationship and committed in love. Like, all right, why is that God's great angle? Why would that be what God's getting at and working towards for centuries? I mean, what's so great about that? Verse 10 tells us. I love this. Here's the reason. So that through the church, the manifold, that means like you can't number, you can't really keep track of it. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and the heavenly places. What that means is when we gather, okay, when we live life together, when we are committed to one another, when we inhabit the same place and love one another, the beings in the heavenly places, angels, demons, principalities, uh, uh, you know, beings in, in the spiritual realm that we can't see, they're looking at us and they're thinking to themselves, wow, that's what God's been up to all this time. That's what God has been working towards for centuries. I had no clue how, how to know how he did it, but he did it. Like it's a jaw, we are a jaw-dropping reality to the heavenly places. And if it's true that that's true in heaven above, it ought to be true in the here and now. Like if those eyes are watching us, you better believe the world's watching us. Like we are supposed to be attractive to the world. We aren't to, we are not, uh, to, we're not supposed to make sense to the world when we gather, that we love one another, that we're forged together. This truly is, a, this is our mission, to be a spectacle. People should think, what in the world is getting all these kinds of people into the same room, into the same friend group, loving one another, showing hospitality to one another, confessing their struggles to one another, being friends and literally just enjoying life together, even though they're like 30 years apart in age, that's what people should think when they look at the church. Now, at this reality, uh, Paul puts it, Paul, Paul captures it in chapter 2 as we are the new temple. I'll read it in chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Here's what he says, that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, we're the, new te- we're the new temple. We're filled with the Spirit. When we are connected to one another, it's like we are, we are being built up into this glorious temple. Now, what is the purpose of the temple throughout the ages, throughout the Old Testament? What is it? It's the place where people would find and discover the presence of God and be attracted to God. The Old Testament anticipates that all the world will stream to the temple, will come to the temple because they'll be in wonder. They'll just be so attracted to what's going on in God's presence. Like, that's what we are now. We are that attraction. We are that power. We are that spectacle because we are now, so therefore we are now the new temple. We are the place where people will come and meet God and be forgiven by him, be attracted to him, be magnetized to him. That's who we are. This is our mission. It's essential you know, 
in the, in the early church, there's an early church father named Tertullian. Uh, in the early, late second century, he wrote an apology, which means an argument or a reason, uh, uh, for the Romans who were just railing the church and Christians with criticism. And one of the things that the Romans were just so um, critical of was how these Christians loved each other. The famous quote in his apology is, look how they love one another. That's what he was hearing from the Romans. And it wasn't like a cute phrase, it was a criticism. They're saying that the, the, the degree and the measure by which they love one another is so radical and weird and strange. Look how they love one another. That's so weird. Two centuries later, Rome makes Christianity its national religion. <laughs> and you know why that is? Because eventually, Christian love just conquered the whole kingdom. Eventually, the gospel just invaded everywhere, and the politically smart thing to do for Rome was to just go ahead and make the power play and make Christianity its national religion because they couldn't keep up with it anymore. Like, this really is the mission. Our love for one another, our friendships with one another on display to the world, it really is powerful. So if you're willing to put the work in, if you're willing to put the work in, you might find yourself explaining to some of your friends why Jesus is so great because of the uniqueness and diversity of your other friends from church. So let me make some, one admonition here, an exhortation here as your pastor. If you call Citizens Church your home, and especially if you're a member here, and especially if you're in your 20-somethings or early 30s-somethings, this is on you more than anybody else. Realizing this and leading this effort is on you more than anyone else because you are in the majority. Because we are a very young church. You should not expect guests to do this. You should not expect those in the minority to do this. I expect you, if you're in the majority, to take leadership on this because this is your church. You are the majority here, so you take lead. So I expect you, I expect you to set the pace here. I expect you to get out of your comfort zone and embrace this vision and actually forge relationships with people that you might not otherwise accept for Jesus. And it'll bless you and it will bless them and it will be a powerful witness to those around you. So I want to now talk to you about why you should pursue this, like why you as an individual ought to make this a huge part of your life. If you don't, you'll miss out. So here's why. I have several reasons here, okay? I'm just going to throw the kitchen sink at you now. I want to motivate you, okay? Why you should have friendships outside your age demographic, all right? Are you ready for this? Because each generation can uniquely bless the other. So see, I'm not going to say older people. I'll say seasoned people, okay? Seasoned people, you can be blessed by people younger than you. Younger people, you can be blessed by people who are seasoned, truly. And if you don't have those friendships in your life, you are really missing out because Young people, when you have friends who are several steps ahead of you in life and you have a relationship with them, like real meaningful relationship with them, it's like stepping into a time machine. You get to benefit from them because the wisdom they have to offer you, the insight they have to offer you, they suffered hard for that wisdom. They endured <laughs> a lot of doubts and struggles and hardships to get that wisdom they, they want to give you freely. Like you can really benefit. What a gift older saints are to us young people. Like we need friends who are several steps ahead of us because they might spare you a lot of pain and heartache and headache. 
But even if, that's, even if that's not taking place, even if there's not like wisdom necessarily being shared, I'll tell you this is, this is what happens when you have someone who's several steps ahead of you in your corner. They can offer you real solidarity. Like, you know what I mean by solidarity? Someone's presence in your life where they say, it's going to be okay. That settles your heart with comfort and puts courage in your heart to keep going. When you're with someone your own age, who's like just as irresponsible as you and just as naive as you, when they say it's going to be okay, like it doesn't mean a lot. (laughs) But when you have someone who's older, seasoned, walking with you, and they've endured cancer, they've endured marriage struggles, they've endured children, walked away from the faith, like they've endured and endured and endured, they say, look, you'll be okay. You'll believe them because they've done it. They offer you real solidarity. So look, you need to make relationships, friendships with people who are not in your same age demographic and vice versa, okay? Seasoned people, you need to accept this and let this happen in your life because young people, for all of the wackiness and all of the immaturity and whatever we are, okay? I'm not young. I'm not going to say we, you, okay? (laughs) I have kids now. So, (laughs) you know, younger people, they're idealistic, and they still have dreams. And there comes a point in life where you have to let go of dreams because practical reality sets in and you just have to do what is right in front of you and you have to accept limitations. But young people can take risks. And young people can uh, put themselves out there. And it's still fun and exciting and that keeps you fresh. It's possible to grow stagnant. And, and it's possible to get bored. But when you keep younger people around with their idealism and their energy and their um, zest for life, that imparts to you, that blesses you with some, some energy. You know, it, it kind of can reignite some things within you. And so truly, it goes both ways. We can bless one another uniquely. All right, so that's why you should make friendships people with people who are not in your same age demographic. Let me tell you why you should make new friendships. Like just, you got a friend group. I know that's comfortable, but you got to expand that now. You have to make new friendships with people who you might not otherwise. And here's why. You, you, each and every one of you, okay? Your soul is complex. You have insecurities. You have doubts and worries. You have insights, though. You have things that you love. You have things that excite you. Um, the, the soul is a mixed bag of complexities. It's, pro, it's a profound thing. You have that. Like, you inhabit, those things inhabit you, and you have a lot to say. You have a lot that you could give and contribute because of just the complexity and profoundness of your own soul. But think about this. There is, that means that everyone in here is deep and profound. That everyone in here has a soul. Therefore, everyone in here is, is, is a really a resource of, possible, of possibility. Every person in here, because they have a deep and complex and rich soul, can really bless you. And that's true apart from Christ because we're made in the image of God. It's even more true. It's amplified when we are in Christ. Let me read a few verses here. Galatians 4.19 says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you, Paul says. Christ in you. He says in Colossians, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. So like when you're a Christian, you have Christ in you. Christ is being formed and shaped within you at those deep and profound levels, 
And when you hesitate to make new friendships, when you just remain comfortable and live in convenience, quite literally what you're doing is you're withholding from yourself more of Jesus. Because each person with their background and temperance and personality and experiences and their soul and their insights and the things they've gone through, their story, they're able to explain and transmit Christ to other people in a way that's very unique. And so quite literally, you're missing out on certain aspects of who Jesus is by withholding yourself from relationships with new people. They really are a resource for you to see all the complexities and beauties of Christ. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he, during World War II, to resist what Hitler was doing in the souls of the citizens of Germany, he was asked to start an underground seminary for the confessional church. So he gathered all these different people all over the region, and they would, their rhythms every day where they would read together, they confess sin, they would study the Bible together, they would sing together, they lived life with one another, all these different kinds of people from different places. And he says this about his experience, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to, to the believer. It's absolutely true, and that's what you're withholding from yourself when you just remain comfortable. So my encouragement to you is to get out of your comfort zone and make new friends. Okay, thirdly, why we should do this, why you should do this. Uh, actually, I want to say why you should commit to a small group, okay? Why small group? Okay, if you're not in a small group right now or if, you, if small group is something that's not a regular thing for you, I want to encourage you to commit to a small group, and here's why. You need other people to be strong when you are weak. You do. And I have lost track of the amount of times somebody has told me, I didn't go to small group this week because I was too discouraged. I didn't go to small group this week because I, I was just exhausted. And my response is always, that's when you need it most. That's when you need to go because that's when you need it. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not, long, I do not belong to the body. That would make, not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of he, where, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The point here is that we are indispensable to one another. We need one another. God has built the church in such a way that we supplement one another. I remember a year ago now. It's been a year. We were, we were preaching through the book of Psalms last summer, and I preached it. I preached Psalm 84. But I remember going to small group, and Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I preached that past, that, this chapter, but I missed that point. Like, I didn't talk about that point that much. It just didn't hit me, I guess. But I remember I was going to a small group, and a brother there pauses, and he's talking, and he says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So that must only mean then that if I'm walking with Jesus and trying to trust him and 
and being faithful, whatever is then happening in my life, whether I like it or not, must be a good thing because no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I miss that, but I haven't forgotten it since. That was a year ago. And I'm the, I'm the preacher. <laughs> and that brother blessed me. I have not forgotten that to this day. I recall that often. No good thing does he withhold from me. So therefore, whatever I'm going through must be a good thing. See, small groups, it's how we disciple one another. It's the space we've created to let God's word reverberate throughout our community. C.S. Lewis, when he was at Oxford, uh, he had some friends, J.R.R. Tolkien, Tolkien was one of them, and Charles Williams was another. There are three authors. But when Charles Williams died, he said, I did not get more of Tolkien, I got less. Because when we're in community, the dynamics mean that, that this person calls this part out of this person, and this part of this person calls this part out of this person. And so all of a sudden, this, this, uh, people are sharing and talking and sharing their stories now, and it's blessing everybody. But it doesn't happen in isolation. It doesn't happen one-on-one necessarily. It happens in groups of people where dynamics invite the other person to share This is how God's word reverberates through the church in such a way that blesses and encourages and makes us strong when we are weak. Lastly, why we gather on Sunday. Why this is so, 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 so important and indispensable. And simply it's this. I mean, there's many reasons why that is the case, but I'll say this. It's because this is what encourages us. This is what helps us move forward. When we gather together, here's what happens. We sing the word, we read the word, we recite the word, we preach the word, we hear the word, we see the word in baptism and the Lord's Supper. The word is what is being administered throughout this whole entire gathering into your heart. It's that you're encouraged, it's that you move forward, and that same word reverberates throughout all our conversations throughout the week. So we need this, and we need one another. And so I hope that you can see that what Jesus' vision for us, it is absolutely a blessing that you do not want to miss out on, but at the same time, it is integral to our mission. In the watching world, and they are watching when they see us loving one another, actually friends with one another because of Jesus, (laughs) then they begin to take notice. And then they begin to listen. And something powerful might take place in our time. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as the father of our family. You have saved us, redeemed us, and brought us together. Thank you, God, for sending Christ to ransom us and step into our lives and and cause a great change. Because, Lord, on our own, if we had our own way, where would we be? What a terrifying thought. So, Lord, only you have the words of life. And so we acknowledge you and praise you. And, Father, as we take the supper together, I pray that we would be unified in our confession, unified in our hope, unified in, um, in the mission that you've called us to. In your name, I pray. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.